This is an ABC podcast. I look forward to leading a government that makes Australians proud. This election didn't just change a government, it was a green slide. Safe Liberal seat, two-term incumbent, independent. We need to go back to our values, our principles, look closely at what has happened. Our policies will be squarely aimed at the forgotten Australians in the suburbs across regional Australia. Hello and welcome to The Party Room. I'm Patricia Carvellis. I'm the host of RM Breakfast, joining you from Wurundjeri country. And I'm Raf Epstein, standing in for a special episode. I'm from ABC Radio Melbourne's Drive Show, also on Wurundjeri land. PK, massive in tray for the new federal government, bigger probably than they even expected Is energy the issue at the top of that pile? A hundred percent. That's right, Raf. There's been a big scare about possible blackouts. Um, There's been some crucial discussions about what the energy market should look like, market failure. How to change it. Clearly the market has failed. I mean, if, if there has to be a dramatic intervention like we've seen this week by AEMO, the energy regulator, that's a market failure. There's Fixed no the doubt about it. the market changed the rules, PK. So that's a big discussion. Soon we'll be joined by David Crow uh, from the Nine Papers. He will join us for his analysis. But really, uh, just briefly from us, you know, this week has really set the scene for how hard things are going to get for the Albanese government I spoke to the Prime Minister this morning. He made it clear, we're recording this on a Thursday morning, that this is the previous government's legacy of a bad system, but it doesn't matter because right now it's his government that has to manage it. Look, so we will get to energy with David, and I know he knows that stuff backwards. I was trying to think of a way to convey the scale of the problem, the broader economy. Like The list is horrible, right? Um, We haven't had consistent inflation in Australia above 5% since the 1990s. We haven't had interest rate bumps as big as this, so half a percentage point. That hasn't happened for more than 20 years. Overnight, America just announced a three quarters of a percentage point interest rate rise. They haven't had a bump that big in 30 years. So the recession talk's going to get louder. Um, Their own central bank is saying, um, we're not trying to induce a recession, but things are beyond our control. So, and that is before you even get to the massive pay rise that people deserved and got. Like, it is a massive catalogue of problems. And, yes, there's a lot of things that weren't done, but none of that is an answer to what they now have to try and do. So this week we heard from the Reserve Bank Governor, Philip Lowe, warning it's unclear how high inflation will go, perhaps as high as 7% by the end of the year. Spoke to Lee Sales and he conceded that his declaration last October that interest rates would not rise until 2024 had influenced how Australians had borrowed. Of course it did. Uh, Here he is. I understand that people made borrowing decisions based on our communication and uh, people took out loans that they may not have otherwise taken out. Um, I'd also point to the fact that the economy has done remarkably well. Okay, the economy may have done remarkably well, but we've got a whole bunch of problems at the moment. The governor did say his comments were meant to be a conditional statement, not a prediction, but clearly there have been decisions that have been made and a lot of people feel very stung right now. Uh, Raf, how is this playing out in in the domestic economy? I mean, there is these these rates are looming. We're looking at the US. There's a lot of very nervous borrowers right now. It's fine if the Reserve Bank governor wants to say, "Please read the fine print." No mm. one reads the fine print. No. Um, so he's going to have to wear that. 
uh, in the same way a politician does. I think it speaks to the much broader problem. Everything that's going on in the economy, we didn't, I've said this to you before, we didn't fix this last time without the structural changes in the 80s and the recession and the global financial crisis of the 90s. So it's that it's that bigger problem. The other fascinating thing actually about the governor saying, look, I'm sorry, don't forget this government has promised, they promised this in opposition, the Labor Party, they're going to review the way the Reserve Bank works. So that will not only affect what someone like um, the governor does in the future, but we clearly need to change the way we deal with the economy. We're used to having... I don't know, once a month the reserve meets, they they look at their data, they're totally separate from the government, the government does their thing in the budget. It's not working. It isn't enough. They don't have enough levers to pull. So the governor fessing up and saying he got that wrong, that feeds into, right, we need to change. The big question is what do those changes end up being? Um, but, yeah, like massive challenges for the new government. Huge challenges. Now, the the new government has been busy trying to establish a sense of... Um, I think a sense of seizing some optimism of the election result and saying, hey, don't worry, we are safe, we're on it, but equally not being knee-jerk. In fact, that's the language, you know, that we heard from the Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. Not going to make policy with you on the radio, Patricia, no, he said. No, and, and that's, probably good. that's reasonable, but it's yeah. also reasonable that I asked the question, totally. right? Um, what is it going to look like? Uh, let's return to that issue of the way that he is making his decisions because there's a crisis and there's a frustration that things aren't being fixed as well. So I think there's a respect being given to him for yeah. not being knee-jerk, but equally people want answers. It's a kind of conundrum, isn't it? So he's fine for now, right? It's only three or four weeks. They haven't even formally counted all the seats, have they? Right? But obviously the biggest, they've got massive challenges. The hardest thing is how far they go, how far they go beyond what they said they would do and when they start to make decisions. Right now, I think there was actually a poll and these numbers have gone up. So, yeah, sure, right now he can come and say, look, Patricia, none of this is my fault. It's all the last mobs. I'm not going to respond rapidly. No knee-jerk responses. I'm going to get advice. I'm going to listen to good advice. That's all That's all fine. The big question is, okay, what's that going to look like in September? What's it going to look like in October when they actually have to make a decision, even a small decision like, right, is petrol excise going to go mm. back up? Do they want to cop the blame for that because they will? That's when the rubber starts to hit the road. Now, the other big and significant issue before we bring in David Crow that happened this week, which I consider to be a significant political win, actually, for the Albanese government, is the Fair Work Commission's decision on Wednesday to lift the minimum wage by 5.2%, taking the hourly rate to $21.38. So it's an extra $40 a week for more than 2 million workers. This happened after the government asked for 5.1%. It was controversial in the election campaign. The the then opposition leader, now Prime Minister, you know, used that infamous word absolutely when asked about 5.1%. Actually, incidentally, he'd spoken to me on our breakfast that morning and hadn't backed didn't in. Didn't want to commit to the figure. Didn't want to commit to the 5.5 is the one I asked him, though, because that was the ACTU claim and then said, yep, should keep up with inflation. And now, uh, as turns out, the Fair Work Commission, are they loose units? Boom, I stole your joke. You told me that on a phone call. So good. <laughs> are they loose units? Because they've gone for 5.2. That's higher than what the government asked for. But given wages was at the centre of the political campaign for Albanese, it is a win for him. It's 100% a win. Firstly, like it's a win for a whole lot of people who've been going backwards. So well, that's if, the most important. If you're important poor, thing. it's a big yeah. win. Hundreds of thousands poor. of people. Great. It also affects people who are low paid, so those awards. So it, so it affects a quarter of the workforce, and we'll get into that, I guess, with David Crow. But, yes, it's a political win. It was really interesting to me that 
Uh, we actually spoke to the Employment Minister, Tony Burke, and he said he was the one who showed the Prime Minister on his phone that the result had come through. And I wanted to know what I wanted to know from Tony Burke what Anthony Albanese's precise words were. He didn't give it to me, so I'm assuming there was some Prime Ministerial swearing of excitement and happiness. But it still presents. It's great. It's really important. Same problem. That seventies spiral. That horror story of wages going up to meet inflation and then inflation goes up to meet wages. That, that's the scary case. thing. But at the same time, I think it's really interesting. If you look at the people who maybe aren't so happy with the government, especially the business groups, uh, Tony Burke also said there's no way businesses are going to shut just because wages are going to go up. The retailers were saying businesses would be pushed to the brink. I put that directly to Tony Burke. He said absolutely not. They won't be shutting their doors just because wages are going up. But look at the language the business groups have been using. I think it's um, Andrew McKellar from the Chamber of Commerce and Industry. He said the IR process, the Fair Work Commission's decision is an antiquated process, a process that has had its day, right? They want to change this. Business Council are saying the same thing. They don't like having Fair Work um, have this much control. It's not a centralised wage-fixing system, but we spoke to businesses during the week, pubs and restaurants, their wages are going to go up. They're already paying above award. Yeah. They know and they, they accept it. They're actually happy with it. They're like, sure, we know we've got to pay It's funny you more. say that because Sally McManus was on RM Breakfast and she said the same thing. She said they're paying more already, paying more. right? Yeah. So don't say you're going to hit the wall because we're living in a very tight labour market. You have to pay right now for your workers. So yes. that it, the idea that you're going to hit the wall on the basis of this broader agreement, they probably will just pick up those who were missing out, were falling well, through hopefully, the cracks. Uh, this, it's just incredibly difficult. Right now, this actually looks difficult. This is easy. Right now, if people who are running restaurants and pubs and clubs and retailers, mind you, some of the hospo, aviation, some of the others, that doesn't come in for a few months. Mm. They're all going to have to be paying a little bit more. In fact, a lot more. There are baristas getting thousands of dollars as a sign-on bonus in the centre of Melbourne yeah. still because you need to attract workers. But again... What does this look like down the track? Uh, you don't know it's out of control and a decades-long problem until it's too late. So that's the delicate balancing act. So kind of a few headaches but a political win on wages uh, for the Albanese government. Can we mention the regional cabinet meeting as well? We must, which is which happened in Gladstone. Why is Gladstone important? Well, Gladstone's important. What, it's in Queensland <laughs> uh, and it's mining country. Uh, and it's somewhere they can go, and they did. They went to visit Rio Tinto because what are Rio Tinto going to do? They're going to keep on digging stuff out, out of the ground and melting it, but they want to do it using renewable energy. But I think, well, one of the very many reasons Gladstone is important, and let's all curse, is it, um, was it Anna Bly who first did the regional cabinet meetings when she was Premier? Anyway, then Kevin Rudd picked it up, and now it's become Kevin a Rudd bit was, of a thing. Kevin Rudd was big, yeah. big on it, yeah. I think Anna Bly might have done it first, but either way, to return to something you and Fran have spoken about, you know, the primary vote falling with the major parties. I got this from the tally room, and this, which is uh, an account on Twitter and online as well. This speaks, I think, a lot to why they're in Gladstone. Back in 2007, when Kevin Rudd is swept into office, the proportion of seats that didn't even need to go to preferences, right? The people, there were major party candidates who won 50% or more of the vote. Half of the seats in the parliament in 2007 didn't go to preferences because the major parties were getting a lot of votes. In the election that we just had, less than one in eight seats didn't go to preferences. So we've gone from half of the mm. seats being decided on first preferences 
to something like 11 or 12% of the seats. The votes are moving away from the major parties. And that is a, a massive reason Labor's got to pick up more seats in Queensland. Uh, they might be that they're, they're, they're thrilled with Victoria. I don't think they've ever had as many uh, seats in Victoria as a proportion, but they've got to pick up seats elsewhere. And they're pushing for preferences just as much as they're pushing for first party votes. The way you do it, you get out there and say, hey, new government, we're out here doing what you want us to do. Yeah, and they identified Gladstone as an area where, you know, there was anxiety at the 2019 election about Labor's policies, but now there is, and I was there for insiders, and I do think there is a sense that people know that the economy is shifting, that the industry is shifting, that they want long-term planning about the their jobs yes. and they can see that fossil fuels are internationally on the way out. Labor's making a bit of a specialty of locking down regional seats. Um, the LNP even now struggle in Queensland. One of the reasons they struggle to form state governments is they don't have that lock on regional cities. That's the LNP in opposition in Queensland. Labor in Victoria, like Ballarat and Bendigo, they're almost safe seats now. So Labor has got form on turning regional seats into a little bit of the bedrock that they need. Um, Gladstone 100% fits that bill. If they're not going to rely on the same Mm. first preference votes, they need to lock in regional centres. If they've got any hope, no one wants to be there for one term, right? Both (laughs) Labor and Liberal, they want to be there for as many terms as possible. Well, Albanese has told us, uh, the new Prime Minister, a number of times that he's got a two at least a two-term strategy. Just briefly, he also met with the Billabula family, as they're known, uh, while he was there. Some pictures, lots of commentary about, you know, the optics around that. What's he trying to send the message of? Well, he's trying to make the really obvious point, isn't he, that it just took a stroke of a pen. Didn't need a vote in Parliament. It's not a big decision. It's something every immigration minister for the last nine years could have done. So there is no significant policy change for people in that situation, the situation that family are in. There is a big change for people who are on a TPV, but this is a different set of human beings who are already in the country. He's sending a few messages, isn't he, that A, you get a dividend when you vote Labor, uh, and it's a really easy thing to do to say you get a political dividend, but also to say, you know what, I'm for a bit of decency, a bit of compassion, and a bit of economic common sense if someone wants to stick around uh, while they're working out whether or not they're going to stay here and work. So he's sending a lot, a lot of Meanwhile, turning back boats and maintaining Operation 100%. Sovereign Borders yeah. as we see... Not changing any of that stuff, but doing this. An increase in boats from Sri Lanka because well, of their we'll see what situation. There. Yeah. All right, should we bring our guest in? Let's do it. <laughs> Chief Political Correspondent for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age, David Crowe, welcome to the party room. PK and Rafe, it's great to be here and I wish everything was quite as relaxed as the uh, the background sounds there. Mm. Gin and tonic or a uh, Mai Tai prawn cocktail, David? What, what's uh, the gin and tonic for me, thanks. Okay, I'll pretend no it's summer. Uh, uh, yes, Ness. Let's talk about energy let's and talk heating. About energy. What can they actually do? We don't have a – I think a lot of people think we have a, an electricity system. We don't actually have an electricity system. We have an electricity market. The market operator shut it down. Um, can I ask you the question that I think I heard you ask the Prime Minister? Um, how long is it going to last? And also, are they going to change the rules around the market? I think they are changing the rules around the market. They've basically suspended the spot market um, to give themselves the ability to direct power into the electricity grid and make sure that they've got some certainty of supply. But uh, when asked about where that additional electricity can come from, <laughs> it's, uh, it's not so clear. And I think this is the reality of the situation. 
there are very few immediate solutions that are at hand. The suspension of the spot market is actually the first time in more than 20 years that that's happened. It's never happened before. So we're into territory where journalists love to use the word unprecedented. <laughs> it's genuinely unprecedented. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're not even kind of over-egging it. It's no. absolutely unprecedented. And the challenge is they've now got the regulator directing the market every day without a spot market, without the free market at work, directing the grid, uh, can tell people to start generating. Um, so there's more certainty of supply, but we yes. still don't have enough certainty about where where an, enough of it can come from because we know that there are coal-fired power generators that are out for maintenance and that are old and other sources are not coming on stream fast enough. And so when I ask the government, look, does this mean that we're going to have to tell people to stop using electricity or will we have more supply, enough supply? There's still stopping short of a real guarantee that there won't be blackouts. They're aiming to avoid blackouts, but they can't be rock solid certain on that. And when I talk to industry, which is why I put these questions to the government, industry people are telling me, look, there's an aluminium smelter in New South Wales that's been asked or directed not to use all the electricity would normally use. That's time ago. That hasn't happened in a lot of other areas yet. And I'm not getting reports of a lot of big manufacturers being well, told can, to stop using electricity. Can I ask you about that, David? Because, mm -hmm. so the aluminium smelter in Victoria has not been told to power down. So I'm really interested That's to That's my know, understanding. Yeah. Is this actually a supply issue? Because a lot of people are saying it's not the same as all the air conditioners running continuously on a hot night in summer. It's not a price problem. It's a supply problem. It's just the stuff's really expensive. The other interesting uh, maybe factor that, perhaps point to it being a price issue and not a supply issue. In Queensland, the government owns the coal-fired generators. They didn't withdraw their power. They, were not, they didn't have to be directed to plug back into the grid like the private ones did. So doesn't that point to it being a price issue? And doesn't that point to, because I want to hear um, Patricia's questions to the Prime Minister, doesn't it point to the only immediate short-term solution, which is the rules, whatever the rules are in the electricity market, that's the biggest lever they've got to pull, isn't it? But I mean, what? How do they? A lever is only useful if it actually gets power into the grid, and and I do think that there is a tightness of supply. When I went to some industry folk this morning, you know, one of the basic messages is that high prices are going to continue um, after the current tightness in the supply um, abates. So there will be ways to abate the tightness in the supply, right? but the, the high prices will continue. So I think it's fair to say it's price and supply. There are, there are constraints on the supply at the moment. Mm. And the fact that, you know, political leaders have been warned for years that coal-fired yes. power stations are going to run out of puff and um, they need to be replaced with additional different ways of generating electricity. And now we're caught in exactly that scenario. But so when I went to people and ask the government, what are the options? There are short-term options such as fixing broken coal-fired power generators, speeding up the maintenance to make sure that they can continue to generate electricity. But I, th I found it interesting that Chris Bowen is not making any promises about how quickly that can happen. Well, they and can't then, of course, speed up the maintenance, can they? They've got supply chain issues there as well. There was some news, some of the units in Victoria, they issued a notice a couple of days ago saying they've got to wait a few more months because they've got to wait for the parts. 
that's why I asked Chris Bowen, and he can't put any time frame on when some of that additional electricity could come back into the grid. So that then leads to the inevitable question about whether load shedding, demand mm. management, is the only you know, immediate short-term solution to what's happening here. Because if you do not have additional sources of electricity, of energy, you're going to have to start telling people to not use it. But the interesting thing is that the government seems to be sending a message of confidence that it doesn't think blackouts are going to be happening. So that's fundamental. That seems to be based on advice that the, the Chris Bowen and others are getting from AEMO, the regulator. So that could be a positive sign. Maybe it won't get that bad when we've, uh, where we get to blackouts. But I've got to say, the situation is very much in balance. That's right. Look, I had Prime Minister Anthony Albanese on RM Breakfast on Thursday morning uh, talking about what he'll do in response to the East Coast energy crisis. Here's some of what he said. Well, there are are weaknesses clearly that have been exposed and and all of the the lessons of of what is happening will be examined and if there need to be any policy adjustments, then they'll be made. So should that, that, that brinkmanship, that ability to play the game, be stopped by the rules being rewritten? Well, it was stopped yesterday. Uh, that's the point of the intervention. So does that mean you think the uh, rules are working or do you think they need to be rewritten? No, it means that that will continue to monitor if there are any policy lessons uh, to be learnt uh, from what is occurring right well, now. What's we your won't instinct? Hesitate. We won't, my, my instinct is to not make policy on the basis of a radio interview. Okay, so um, no policy made up on uh, uh, during a radio interview, but David Crow clearly uh, the government will look at the rules of the market. I mean, it has to kind of just keep things going right now with the current existing architecture, but clearly everything's on the table, right? In some ways, the rules are actually pretty good day by day because the regulator is in total control of the market without a spot market deciding price and supply. Yeah. You know, the regulator's got this got this authority. Um, I'm not, nobody's saying to me, look, there needs to be a new law passed rapidly to give the regulator greater authority here. If the regulator can, can govern the market without a spot market distorting some of these questions about supply, then there is greater certainty. I think that that is actually a source of greater confidence for Chris Bowen when he looks at the, um, at the way that the situation we'll is running day by that, day. We'll have to pay for that, won't we, David? Don't, I mean, at some point, because the way the market works... Once they effectively get direct, it doesn't matter if they get directed with cap prices or if they suspend the market and the regulator has the say, down the line, there's compensation that comes out of the market. That's compensation that eventually you and I pay for with our domestic power bills, isn't it? I think that's right. And I think it's a great shame that we are now limited to one question per press conference with Anthony Albanese and Chris Bowen. I mean, it's such a complicated issue. We didn't even get to put that question to the political leaders on um, Thursday because there are so many aspects to this challenge. But inevitably, when, when the regulator directs generators into the market, it triggers compensation. We don't know quite how big that compensation is going to have to be. No, we don't yet. Look, okay, so that's the immediate crisis. Let's talk about some of the solutions. Former Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull popped up on Monday with me on RM Breakfast with his own suggestion calling for 90 days of export volume limits and price controls for gas. Here he is. My recommendation would be that the Commonwealth Government, uh, working with the states in the East Coast uh, national energy market, should work together to impose on a temporary basis both export volume 
and price controls on gas. Uh, so in other words, make sure that all the gas we need is available here. Uh, this will involve imposing force majeure on contracts. Okay. Pretty radical, David. Would they do it? It's pretty drastic and they are not talking about anything like that. And I've got to say they're not particularly uh, welcoming the uh, the input from Malcolm Turnbull, who had a chance to fix some of these problems uh, a couple of years ago. So everybody's wise after the event, aren't they? It's a, I've got to tell you, it's so frustrating seeing so many opinions about what can be done and political people who've been in power weren't able to come up with the solution. So, you know, yes, you could trigger force majeure. Yes, you can, uh, a sovereign government can do any of these things. And then it gets blowback from Japan and South Korea who say, sorry, we actually needed that gas to power our industry. So, you know, it's easy to say it, as Malcolm Turnbull's time in power proved, it's very hard to do it because you have so much division on this question. Just want to propose something to you, David. I know you've had a lot to do with Rex Patrick, who, when he was an advisor with Nick Xenophon, he helped design the trigger that Malcolm Turnbull did actually bring in, the thing that's never been used, and then as a senator he tried to adjust it. He was on the radio with me saying, look, what the government should do, they've got that particular legislative weapon. The energy minister, Chris Bowen, can write those regulations however he likes them. And Rex Patrick was saying to us on the radio, look, just do it and dare the parliament to change those regulations, that if you adjust those regulations and just keep some of the gas here, take the pressure off the electricity system and then dare people like Peter Dutton and the Greens who've been calling for the trigger, dare them to oppose it. So Rex Patrick's gone now, sadly, because he's been really a firm advocate on these things. Do you think the government's entertaining that idea at all? No, I really don't think so. I think... There's nothing that they've done so far that indicates they're willing to take it to the brink of depriving, of breaking a contract to send Australian gas to uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, China, Singapore, um, because that's what it involves. If you take it to the brink, you have to start breaking contracts. Um, When I've talked to people in the past, they have not been able to point to any additional spare capacity of supply in the market. Except Only ten percent goes to the spot market. There, no, but there it's is not, long-term. No, it's no, not but it's short-term. not. Hang on a minute. Wait a minute. It's not spare. No. It's going overseas it's on long-term signed contracts yes. signed up years ago. Ten yes. percent goes to the spot market. So yes, you could say, or well, less than ten percent actually. That's been shrinking because there's um, because of this very problem. So I'm told. So yes, there is some that you could that you could direct into the domestic market. You can take it to the brink with the gas exporters, but it only gets you so far until you tell the Japanese government, sorry, you can't have your gas. Okay, so very briefly, because I want to move to another issue, but you've been writing about gas reservation policy uh, and clearly is that going to be considered, do you think, by Labor in the longer term? It's been, you know, as you wrote in a column in their platform, but they haven't kind of decided to do it. No, they're reviewing it though. It's, It's interesting that when they say, talk about things on the table, I think that is on the table. And it gets back to Malcolm Turnbull's point. Yes, you could do it Turnbull's way, but that's only an immediate short-term thing. You still have to look at the outlook over several years to come. And I think that does raise the question of the frustration in the community that we don't have enough gas. It's our gas. Why don't we have it? And so it's a reservation policy that is the answer. But it is interesting that uh, the Resources Minister, Madeleine King, um, she's considering that. She's also supporting the idea of further gas fields being developed. And that's obviously a threshold issue for a lot of people. 
the environmental movement, the Greens. Uh, Labor's Environment Action Network doesn't like the Narrabri gas field in New South Wales going ahead. So even on that question, should, should we have new gas fields developed or not, there's huge division on that. It's very hard to see them um, overcoming some of those objections. Just briefly, we've already talked at the beginning, so we won't get into it for too long, but the Fair Work Commission's decision on wages, uh, which really delivers on something that Anthony Albanese lent a lot of political weight to in the election campaign. It's a win for Labor, isn't it, uh, David Crow? But what are the risks? I guess there's a risk of a... Um of wages getting out of control and inflation getting out of control, you know, and some kind of spiral. And so that is a view from The Economist. But I think my colleague Jess Irvine made a good point in our papers. Look, there'd be a greater risk if, if um, unemployment wasn't so, so low, you know. In, in theory, a wage increase of this kind can lead to, you know, jobs not being created. But I, we're not really looking at that because of the strength of the employment market. The timing has worked out beautifully in a way for the government because Anthony Albanese backed an increase in line with inflation. That's what the regulator, uh, workplace regulator has done. Um, I think it's very interesting that the Labor Industrial Relations spokesman, Tony Burke, is absolutely backing this. I don't know whether it'll always continue, uh, given that inflation is now on, on track to go to 7%. Um, but they're, but they're totally uh, backing this in. And I think the politics has, has worked for the government, no question. Can I ask you two both a question? Because I, no, I don't know the answer to this. David, we're, we've talked about the complexity of the energy issues. The economy's just as, if not more, complicated. Do you think, David, that they're going to... Are they going to do something radically different to what they were talking about during the election campaign? Because the campaign, we didn't talk about any of this in any substantial way? Are they going to, before the end of the year, the new Labor government start talking about some really big and different things, different to what they promised? I doubt it. I, I really do doubt it. And that's why I'm sceptical about the stamp duty reform um, yes. being raised by the states, because I don't see an appetite for that in the government, uh, certainly not from Jim Chalmers. So there's a lot of, there's a, there'd be years, I think, of debate on that question. I think that an immediate thing is uh, the employment summit. Yeah. Uh, they're planning the employment summit. Then they go into the October budget. But I think that's all about what they've already committed. They've committed to some industrial relations reform. They're doing an audit of spending that'll be acted on, I think, in the October budget. Um, on energy, they said that they would invest in the transmission network to, to, to make it a 21st century transmission grid for renewables. I think that's what they'll do. Um, so on those core areas, they're doing what they said before the election. And by the way, I don't agree that they were a small target. I think that all those were significant policy reforms. But I don't see any uh, temptation for them to uh, go off base, basically, into new fields. Ooh, what a meaty podcast, David Crow. <laughs> Thanks for providing all the meat for us, the policy meat. We're talking about policy again. Crises. It's a good thing. A good thing. Thanks for coming on. No worries. Great to talk. Questions without notice. The Leader of the Opposition. Thank you, and, and I'm pleased the question time at least is happening, Mr Speaker. Before I get any complaints, we will change that. He's not the Leader of the Opposition anymore. As soon as Parliament sits last week of July, we'll get the different sound. It'll be Peter Dutton, I suppose, asking the Opposition <laughs> questions. Uh, Who's going to be Speaker? So many good questions. 
but I can't answer that. But I can answer maybe Sean's question, which goes like this. Against the backdrop of constantly being told the Australian politicians are afraid to make hard decisions because they will be punished at the ballot boxes, do you think we should move to longer federal terms so that governments can better pursue needed reforms without constantly worrying they would not bear fruit before the next election. Love your work. I love yours too. Well, I don't know you, but I, I do like that you listen to the podcast and please continue. Tell your friends. Raph? I'm in two minds. Uh, I'm very conscious of the way I cover state politics. Four years seems like a really long time, but it might feel like a really t- long time as well because we have fixed terms in Victoria like you do in New South Wales, lots of other places as well. Probably would be my answer. I would agree with Sean that it does give politicians a bit more room to manoeuvre. I very strongly remember, to be honest, Daniel Andrews' tough actions, whatever you thought of them, in 2020, and I remember thinking, oh, well, he can cop a lot of pain because Mm. it's two years away. So I thought that at the time. I don't know that I necessarily think it is true. I, I don't know if what Sean is seeking, which is basically he wants them to stop thinking about politics and focus on policy, the major guide for keeping policy through a political lens, I think, is because prime ministers in Australia, so the federal leaders, they get to choose the date. So I think that leaves them, I, I think that exaggerates the partisan lens on policy. But yeah, I, if, I had, if I was pushed, I'd probably go to four years. But if the party you don't like's in power, you're not a fan. No. Uh, look, I love democracy, so frequent elections I enjoy, right? But <laughs> equally, I do think that what you get in the current system is really, and everyone says this, this is, you know, I'm borrowing this, this is not my original thought, but I believe it very strongly. You get one year. The first year is just bedding things down, getting, you know, like really, like they are just getting briefed still and getting used to everything. That second year, that's key. That's the doing year. And then that last year is preparing for an election. So that one year is not good enough, I don't think, for real reform. So I do think it should be longer terms. And, you know, suck it up if you don't like the party. You will get to vote. Like, we're not getting rid of democracy. Four years is a long time. It Two is. Two terms, eight years, long time. It is. I think, um, uh, look, you know, these are just opinions. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I like to see what real, like everyone I, thinks. I'm not convinced. I love fixed terms, though. I like oh, it being. Like that. Oh, yeah, yeah. Me too, me too. I'd I like be happy you know when the date is. And if you're not doing very well yeah. as a political party, oh, well, try harder. Um, uh, that's your job to do a good job and rather than it being in your hands to game the system, I find that the kind of the guesswork around which day in May this election was going to be, I found so banal I wanted to sort of stab myself with a fork, like honestly. Uh, uh, in the eye or in, in the temple? <laughs> uh, wherever <laughs> I could do maximum damage because I was just so sick yes. of hearing about I, which date in May it would be. I mean, just have a date that we all know it's coming to and then you get to, you know, there's there's a verdict of the people. That's my instinct. I think the variety, because actually three years becomes actually any time over sort of six to nine months. Yes. I think that's more of a guide. I, I'm a bit of a cynic though. I just think politicians are always going to look at things through a political lens. So maybe, okay, if we went to four years instead of three years, maybe they'd have a bit more time. I don't know. I mean, look, we just talked about the fact they're in Gladstone. They're in Gladstone for a, re, uh, a reason. It's the not re-election. only political yeah, reason. Yeah, I know, but the re-election <laughs> campaign started now, right? They know that. They know they've, they're they not going to get the primary vote they used to get. So I, I hear Sean's concern about policy over politics. I'm not convinced the length of the term is going to make a difference. I think there's much bigger, important conversations to be had about maybe the media 
and the way the media report on politics that I think is a bigger part of the problem. Oh, look, he dangled that carrot. We're not, we can't even go to it. But um, let's have our own podcast where we discuss the media's behaviour. I know people would love it, <laughs> especially if we sort of start attacking ourselves. Um, send your questions in. We love getting them. Uh, um, basically, you can use the hashtag the party room or you email your questions to the party room at abc.net.au. And remember to follow the party room on the ABC Listen app or wherever you get your favourite podcast. That's it for The Party Room this week. Thank you so much uh, for coming and doing this with Absolute me, joy. Raph. Um, you'll come again. Thank you so much. Because, you know, Franz, Franz um, she gets around. So any anytime she <laughs> leaves busy, me, man. will She's you busy. be my main man? 100%. You're in Melbourne here. so I can eyeball you too. I love that. Let's do it. See ya. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.